He'll come back for the second. India have won the test match. India have won the series. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the 81 All Out podcast. This is Siddhartha Vaidyanathan at Sidvi on Twitter. And I'm joined as usual by my co-host Mahesh, who is at Cornered on Twitter. Hi, Mahesh. Hi, Sidvi. Yeah. Today, we have the pleasure to welcome Michael Sexton, a journalist, producer and sports writer with over 30 years of experience. Michael, who is based in Adelaide, has worked with ABC, BBC, and Channel 9. He has written eight books, and we are here today to talk about his latest work, which released last year, called Borders Battlers. This is a book that rewinds to the extraordinary test between India and Australia in Madras in 1986, only the second time in test history when a game ended in a tie. Anyone who watched that game then would have some memory, some memory or the other associated with it. And Michael has done a terrific job of uh, recreating the drama and tension that enveloped the ground uh, throughout the test, but especially on the final day. So welcome, Michael. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on. Great. So I would like to start off uh, by uh, telling our listeners uh, that this book uh, released last year, but uh, for some reason it completely skipped uh, my eye. And it was only recently that uh, someone pointed it out to me and I was uh, immediately fascinated to pick it up and I read it and it's a great book. I'll link, uh, I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. So please pick it up and read it. If you were not born in 1986, then it's a terrific read. So I would recommend it highly. So, Michael, let's begin uh, with your own memories of that test. Uh, where were you back then? How did you follow this game? And um, if you could just set the context. Well, it's an interesting question you had to start off with because, of course, like virtually everyone in this country, the test match almost happened without us noticing, which seems ridiculous in hindsight. But it occurred in the mid-1980s uh, it occurred in the middle of winter, Australia time I'm talking about. The match was played at night and it was during the football final season. And, of course, in this country, um, that's like a religion, the winter sports. So test cricket at that point, it was people were picking up the paper in, this morning and, in the morning and reading a match report or perhaps hearing on radio what had happened overnight. And that's really how we kept the, the match was not broadcast in this country in any form. The ABC didn't do the radio. There was no television highlights, virtually no television highlights. So in many respects, it kind of adds to the mystery of the game. It, it's in complete contrast to the other tied tests, which of course occurred in Brisbane in the early 60s between West Indies and Australia. And that was the reverse in that that was one of the first series that was broadcast on television across Australia and it captivated the nation what was going to happen. Whereas the test match in Madras was almost a mysterious event that happened at night. And so in many ways, it's, it's, it's never quite, in my opinion, had the kudos that it deserves for the epic game that it was. So I, I guess I'm afraid I'm like most Australians and that was that I, I would have been aware that it was going on the match but certainly didn't follow it ball by ball. Very interesting. So, yes, I did know about this. So, also, the additional point here was, of course, that uh, back then in the mid-'80s, the Australian cricket team itself was going through uh, quite a low period 
And uh, I would imagine that, uh, you know, in a multi-sport country, that uh, cricket uh, was take, had already taken a bit of a backseat, uh, given that the performances of the team weren't that inspiring. Very much so. And, and you're right. I mean, one of the things I found fascinating about studying this period is that um, Australia, after this season, went through what became a golden age, really, in the in the latter years of Alan Border's career, and then with Mark Taylor and Steve Waugh and Ricky Ponting, these they had success after success. But in the early and mid 1980s, Australian cricket was really on its knees. A series of events had happened. Uh, first of all, they had World Series cricket in the late 70s, which had really split the cricket community very badly, and a lot of those wounds had never properly healed. And then they had um, the Rebel Tours to South Africa, which took a number of senior players, plus possibly some of the next generation of great players who went. And then in one single moment, they lost Dennis Lilly, Rod Marsh and Greg Chappell all to retirement. So you lost three of the all-time greatest players. And then this awful business where Kim Hughes found the captaincy overwhelming and he had to hand the captaincy on to Alan Border, who was the most senior player, and Alan really didn't want to be captain of Australia. It's hard to believe in hindsight that a game which is really the national sport of this country was in a situation where you had a reluctant captain, you know, a group of players who were playing for themselves, and I don't mean that in a negative way, I mean in the sense that they were struggling to survive at the highest level, and, and if sportsmen are struggling in that position, they tend to become self-centred, it's about survival. And they were losing to everyone. I mean, Australia had never lost to New Zealand before and they lost two consecutive series inside three months. The test match at Brisbane against New Zealand, Richard Hadley in one of the greatest bowling performances ever. I mean, he just destroyed them. So the, the part of the, the, the interest I had in this writing about the tied test was that this was really, to use a cliche, the line in the sand for Australia. This was where Border really had to kind of say, you know what, we have to stop losing. We have to, we have, to have a result. And I really think that was part of the charm of this game is that it was such an epic contest in a country far away from home where they really started to find them at their way back in world cricket. Yeah, so you you do write uh, about that uh, period in the series against uh, New Zealand when the couple of series when they lost and when Alan Border was, uh, of course, uh, <laughs> not in the best frame of mind. But, uh, uh, you know, apart from uh, what you mentioned, was there any other uh, impetus to write this book at the time that you wrote it? Uh, or was it just uh, something that came up? Because it was 2019, and as far as I could see, there was no anniversary or any anything of that sort. So was there any reason for the timing? No, it's a good question. Normally there is a, a five or a zero attached, isn't there? It's, it's 20 years or 25 years. It was really just I was looking for a project. I'd written a book previously about uh, Ian Chappell uh, in the 70s, and um, and that had been... Um, you know, quite successful and the publisher was interested. And it was a game that had always interested me. Um, and I think also, um, you know, I'm fascinated with India and uh, the subcontinent. I just think it's such an interesting place. And again, getting back to this theme, for Australians of a certain generation, times have changed, but for a certain generation, India was a, a mysterious country that we knew about from history books, perhaps. And, you know, to... It was just a place that people had stories about that seemed impossible to believe. And, and so it's always interesting. I think the two, the two great challenges for Australian cricket was to win 
in India and to win in the West Indies. And um, those, two, those two places were really interesting to me. And so I became more and more interested in that and, and also interested in the story of the pe- people who ended up going. All right. So uh, let's uh, talk a bit about the, you know, the process of uh, writing this book itself first with the research. And uh, the, so the players you met, I mean, you do mention um, the players in the, you know, in the book, uh, you do mention the players that you spoke to, but uh, did you have to, did you end up meeting quite a few of them? Were there a lot of uh, online interviews? And uh, talk a bit about that. Mm. So it was a couple of ways I went about it. Um, first of all, the good news is that if you have a, even a modest test career in Australia, you pretty much end up getting a book contract. So um, fairly well, everyone who has played test cricket for Australia at one time or another has a memoir, uh, which is always really handy to read those books. And that those sort of things gave me a great base. Now, the reality is also that getting access to players, I'm sure is the same in India, is not easy um, uh, because of various vested interests. So in a sense, I kind of a lot of the preliminary interviews I did were bits and pieces that I picked up along the way. For example, um, when I was working at the ABC, um, Steve Waugh had been dropped from the Australian team and he was playing for New South Wales in a match against South Australia. And I went down to their New South Wales training one night and he had some things to say there and, and I asked him about the tide test there. And so sometimes there were, there were snippets of information I got from them. But the the key moment came for me when... There was a charity match played in the Barossa Valley, which is a wine-growing region north of Adelaide, and it was a fundraiser for the late David Hooks's um, charity. And it, India were touring at the time, and they brought together a number of players who'd played in the Tide Test, and it was a very informal gathering. So I was able to speak to Dave Gilbert. The two umpires were there. Um, Ray Bright was there. Bruce Reed was there. Dave Gilbert, as I said, um, and also, just as a side, Vishen Beatty was there, which is a personal thrill because he's just one of my favourite cricketers and so I happened to speak to him. But the key to it was getting Greg Matthews. Now, Greg Matthews is an eccentric person. He's differently wired to most people and most cricketers, which makes him so interesting. But he's also quite uh, reluctant to speak. He's not easy to get him to talk. You don't often see him interviewed and so forth, even though when he does, he's so interesting. But in that informal setting, I was able to get to him and the raw enthusiasm he had for that tied test. I mean, he, you know, his, his eyes lit up when he wanted to talk about it. And it was, a, if I could describe it to you, it was quite, quite hilarious because we were talking about what had happened and sometimes stupid questions get good answers. And on this occasion, I asked a stupid question because I said to him, when you lined up to bowl that last over, on the final day and were you aware of the history that was in your hands? And he looked at me as if, you know, uh, it really was a ridiculous thing to say. He said, of course I was aware of it. Of course I knew standing up there exactly what the moment was. He then proceeded, rather than answer the question, to reenact the entire final over in which he played the role of bowler, batsman, fielder and umpire. And it was brilliant. It was like a vaudeville show. And he commentated that entire over as well. And he knew it, every ball went, everybody who fielded it, what everyone said. It was, it was absolutely fantastic. And I thought at the time, I thought, I have to write, eventually I'm going to have to write about this test match because um, 
it meant so much to these guys. And Ray Bright was the same and Dave Gilbert, who was 12th man. I mean, they spoke with such passion about it. So that that was, I got a lot of those guys. Now, the other great fortune I had was that at the ABC had done a documentary on the 20th anniversary, which some of you, I don't know if you've seen, it's probably on YouTube, called Madras Magic, which was about the you know 20th anniversary. Now, they had interviewed a number of the key people and they allowed me to look at the interviews they had done. And, for example, the interview they did with Dean Jones for that documentary series went for over an hour. So that was just rich with detail. And then what I found, the last thing I found that was really helpful was there's often I find there's a number of people who aren't necessarily the stars who rarely get interviewed but who often have very interesting perspectives and details. And so I chased down quite a few of those people and uh, that was really worth the effort. And they were just people I was able to ring at their home and talk to them, people like Errol Alcott, who was the Australian team physio, the Australian team manager, um, to talk to guys who weren't in, uh, weren't actually playing in the 11, uh, Michael Valletta, for example, and they were really good because they were able to give a perspective and in many respects had never been interviewed before about the game. Yeah, those are the parts of the book that really uh, stuck with me as well. I mean, I, I, I have seen that documentary, Madras Magic, and uh, so a lot of the quotes uh, seemed a bit familiar from before, but, you know, the people who you speak about, Valletta and Errol Alcott especially, I mean, Alcott has... I think has an elephantine memory, the detail that he remembers from each day. And this, given the fact that he was not that big a cricket fan. I mean, as you say, his nickname was Hooter because he once asked, when does the Hooter go off for the, when the match ends? So. It's, he, was, he was fantastic. He was difficult to get originally. He, he was a little reluctant to talk about it. And my sense of that was that he had over the years formed such a personal relationship with the players and probably had seen and dealt with them at their lowest points and so therefore had a certain protective instinct about them and I suspect that was part of it. But once he agreed to talk, he was fantastic and he he has, because he was a physio, I think he came from, I guess, a, a science background, so he was very logical in his process. He'd also kept notebooks, which he which he brought out and in those notebooks, for example, you know, this is very basic sports science, but at the time no one was really doing it. He used to weigh all the players, for example, before they went out to bat and then he would weigh them again afterwards to see how much weight they'd lost and 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 to try to, to get fluids into them and he was trying to do those things. His father had been a doctor. So he, he had that side of it um, and he really did remember. I mean, his recall of the circumstance uh, at the end of the second day's play when Dean Jones was taken to hospital was tremendous and he was full of praise for Indian medical staff but also his descriptions of the chaos involved of trying to take a player and yet there was Alan Border, captain of the Australian side, who actually wasn't aware that Jones was even in hospital really until they'd got back to the hotel and then he goes to visit Jones in hospital and sort of sits at the seat of his bed watching TV because... It's, it was such an unlikely event in, in what was going on, but Olcott was the one who saw the seriousness of the moment and, and realised that, you know, these guys were being pushed to the point of, of serious illness and he had to act. So it was he was fantastic. And, and as I said, guys like Michael Valletta and others were really helpful. And I also tracked down several members of the travelling press party from Australia. There was only seven who went. 
and they too had very rich detail of the circumstances and little moments along the way of the tour um, and what it was like. And I, and I always feel with writing, the stuff I really like reading is rather than the hero's stories, I really like to know, you know, those sort of small fine details about things, you know. For example, a really small one was that Bob Simpson, who was the Australian coach, um, he used to fill in time at the cricket by writing letters home. Um, shows how long ago it was. Um, and, he, and he mentioned that, you know, when he sat down to write, you know, he couldn't because his hand kept sticking to the paper because it was so hot in the rooms. He ended up having to put this towel, uh, you know, wrap his arm in a towel so he could write. These are the sort of things that are, are really interesting, I think. Uh, now that you mention uh, that second day's play when, uh, you know, the, the whole journey from the stadium to the hospital, Dean Jones was pretty much in a state of uh, semi-consciousness. Semi so he probably would have re remembered very little. So it needed you to speak to Errol Alcott to get to know what happened. And similarly, uh, you know, you mentioned the next morning when Mike Coward, the veteran Australian journalist, when he woke up from his hotel, uh, woke up and then uh, looked out of the hotel room window, he saw Dean Jones swimming there in the swimming pool. And so, you, you, you know, talking to Mike Coward gave you that gaze, gave you that lens through which to look at that. And th I thought that was really, really interesting base in which you told that story. It is, um, and you're right, and, you know, a lot of the players thought that Dean Jones had stayed all night at hospital, and, of course, he was discharged around about midnight. And it was only by talking to Mike Coward, who said, I remember seeing him swimming laps. I was then able to check back with Errol Alcott and say what happened. He said yes, and, and then that gave the further detail that Alcott had been for some time concerned at the cheapness of the Australian Cricket Board. The Australian Cricket Board had a bad habit of booking Australian teams into budget accommodation uh, to save money. And Olcott was really of the import, you know, saying this was really important that we have hotels and facilities where they've got a pool or a gym or something like this. And it was such an interesting detail again, because he said, because Jones had been so dehydrated, he was cramping up so badly, he was so sore that the perfect release for him was to in the morning go swimming and just do laps and try and get his body to work again after what he'd been through the the previous two days yeah so that that was uh, that process of triangulation is wonderful isn't it when you're writing this book you don't want to just go with one source so you it's it's a thrill to find that second source to confirm what the first source has said that's it. Yeah, it's kind of like a detective story. Um, I think Gideon Haig once said that writing a book um, about a cricket match, you know, based on match reports is a bit like trying to write a play based on the reviews. And I know what he's getting at in that you, could, you, were, you weren't there necessarily there yourself and you're kind of piecing together bits and pieces. But as we know, um, match reports are often written on the fly. They're often written very quickly and details can be wrong. And it's fascinating sometimes to rewind and find things out. For example, I was talking to Michael Valletta, and Michael Valletta had been a chance to be in the side, but he, at the end they went with Dean Jones rather than him batting at three. And I was asking him these questions along the lines of what was it like in the rooms and were you aware? And he said, what do you mean in the rooms? He said, I was on the field. He said, I was on the field watching Ravi Shastri hit sixes over my head on the final day into the crowd. And I said, well, you were, you know, you were 13th man. He said, well, was I? 
And I said, well, according to the scorecard, you, you were, Dave Gilbert was 12th man, you were 13th man. He said, well, I don't know. I spent most of the time in the field. <laughs> and it turns out that because Jones was unwell and Ray Bright was unwell and at times Steve Waugh and Craig McDermott were unwell, that Australia more or less used Valletta as a substitute fielder for most of that match. Now, he does. I could not find a mention in any of the match reports of Valletta being involved anywhere, and yet he said, he said at the end of each day, and then there's a tiny bit of film, because only about 12 minutes of film exist, where you can see Valletta walking off the field, and he looks like a guy who's been on the field all day. So that was a for me that was really interesting as well, and I and I'm still to this day not sure whether or not Australia broke the rules on that. Oh, well, uh, I don't think there would be a way to retrospectively change the result. I'm thankful, <laughs> and I'm thankful for that. <laughs> How about uh, talking about uh, you know going back in time? Uh, one of the aspects of the book that I really enjoyed was you have uh, managed to recapture the. Uh, the stadium in Madras, as it was back then, the sounds, the smells, the humidity, and the, uh, everything that went on there. I mean, of course, you uh, have spoken to a lot of people, but uh, did it also? Did you also make a trip or trips there? Uh, how did you go about getting the geographical specificity so well? So there was a couple of things I did. Um, that the there was a guy I knew who had filmed part of that Madras documentary. He had been to Madras. And I contacted him and his wife had also lived in Madras for several years. And there's two things in this. The first one was that he was a he had taken a lot of beautiful photos at the time he was there. And the stadium hadn't changed at the time he was there from when it was in 86. And he was able to point out, and I kind of just asked him, like, you know, where did the players come down? You know, where did they sit during the game? You know, where was the crowd at this point? And, you know, and he was really, he had a really good memory and a really good eye for things. And he'd say, you know, it was really hot in the morning, so the sun would come in this way and, you know, there was a fence there. And, you know, it was really good stuff. The second thing was that his wife had lived there and she had been to several cricket matches and she also had taken photos and had kept a diary. And those two things combined, um, along with, you know, historic photos of the time and some of the films which were available, some of the video available of the match, I was just really conscious of trying to set the scene because, as we know, stadiums come and go and things change and it's not, it's not what we see now is not what it was like necessarily then. Um, and, you know, a really small example was that this famous story about Greg Matthews wearing a jumper, putting on a sweater, on the final day, despite the heat, which was a psychological ploy. But he said to me, he said, I put it on and he, then he said, I turned my head so I could see the Indian players and I made sure they saw that I was wearing it. And I was trying to say to them, I'm not even worried by the heat. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to wear a sweater because the heat just doesn't bother me. So then I said to the guys who'd been there, I said, well, you know, where were the Indian players sitting that this could have occurred? And, you know, they were able to confirm that that did happen. So... Um, those sorts of things, I just, I just kind of was really conscious that I wanted to, anything I put in, I had to make sure that it was a correct detail and also it was a detail that continued to tell the story rather than just in for the sake of being in. And was there uh, anything uh, in here that uh, 
there were that you felt was a discrepancy and that you couldn't include because uh, there was something that a player said, but somebody else couldn't confirm it or somebody else had another a viewpoint on that? Yes, there was a couple of things. Um, there was It got very spiteful on the final day, very spiteful, the game. And one of the players said to me, when they went to a drinks break, he said that, and I'm not going to name the players because I don't know, but he said there was a headbutt between one of the Indian batsmen and one of the Australian fielders. They butted heads while they are going for drink and that they had to be kind of separated. And he told me that story and then I was never able to completely confirm. Some people said, oh, it probably happened, maybe it didn't happen and, you know, nobody really... So I didn't put in much detail about that. I was sure it did happen, but that was a that was a discrepancy that I, you know was such a it's a very strong allegation to make if it if it didn't happen. Um, so I so I was cautious with that one. The other one was that Dean Jones said to me that he thought there was a discrepancy in the score scoreboards. He said the two scoreboards at the ground had different scores, and he said in the final over I didn't know where we were at. He was the only player who said that. Um, Alan Border said he wasn't entirely sure at the end of the game whether the, we, whether we being Australia, had lost or if it was a tie. And then you had Greg Matthews saying, I knew exactly what the score was. I knew what every ball was worth. So that was, again, I just put that down to the fog of memory. You know, people have, a you know, years go by and there are different things. You know, whether the two scoreboards were different, I don't know. But that was that was Jones's story. But that was one of the f- only the few discrepancies in it. Well, uh, Zinedine Zidane's headbutt could have been the second most famous headbutt in the world of sport had this been confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, Steve mentions this in the in the documentary Madras Magic, and also on the Dean Jones scoreboard thing, he mentions that again in the in the Madras Magic uh, documentary as well. But like he says, nobody else talks about it. Uh, about the scoreboard being different at all. No player from either side talks about it. I think that's it. I mean, I think, look, I think it's 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 a fine detail and it, it may be true, it may not, I just don't know. Just to sort of add to the point of capturing the authenticity and, and the vibe of the ground, I come from Chennai and I've watched a lot of tests uh, at Chipok. And when I started watching, the ground was still very similar to what it was uh, in 86. So I was very, very delighted to see the little details that you added about, uh, you know, uh, there's a stand where people sit on the floor and next to that is a, is a stand where people sit on the bench. But that stand is exclusively accessible only to the TNCA members. So that's the legendary D stand and the tickets for which are not sold to the public. So you only get tickets to that stand if you have access to some club member. So I was really delighted to see all these little details come through. And, and also the fact that crowds go back and, and sort of uh, take shelter at the top of the stands. One, it gives you the shade. And unlike the players, the crowd does get some of the breeze from the beach. Uh, for some reason, I've spoken to a lot of players about it, but it doesn't quite reach the playing surface. But crowds who are sitting at the edge of the stands do get a breeze and, and it's a much uh, needed relief from the, from the heat. It's very interesting you say that because I always one of the questions I always had to the guys playing was that they were always disturbed by the smell coming off uh, the Buckingham Canal, and I said to them, "But did it? Did the, did the smell also bring a breeze?" And they rarely would 
suggest they'd say, oh, there was a bit of a gentle breeze. The umpires said that there was a breeze in the afternoon. They said at about 3 o'clock. The other thing which I had to check too, and you can confirm this, is that the light goes very quickly. And um, this was part of the problem they had on the final day was that there was this rancour going on and became very ill-tempered between the umpires and Alan Border because Border was so slow at setting the fields. And the umpires were saying, you know, we're going to lose the light here. You know, the, the light will go. And Border was saying to them, look, it's bright, sunshine, it's hot, we've got all day, you know, this is not a club game, you know, this is a test match, you've got to give me time. You know, it was very rancorous. And I'm never entirely sure, but from what I understand is that it is that in, the, in that part of the world that, that the light will go quickly, whereas perhaps in England, as we know, and, and in parts of Australia too, you know, you really can keep playing until 7, 8, 9 p.m. sometimes. No, that's true. Six o'clock is, is like our deadline. After six, it gets pretty dark uh, and, and like quite a dramatic, you know, uh, move from brightness to darkness. So uh, I did uh, watch the documentary just before coming here. And Ravi Shastri talks about it as well, saying he wanted to, you know, take border away from the situation, not so much because he was concerned about border, uh, border arguing with the umpire, but he was concerned that he was losing precious daylight. To remember too for Alan Border, you know, this was a rare victory. I mean, he 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 had only in the months leading up to this tour threatened not to captain Australia anymore. And in fact, he'd gone further than that. He'd actually gone and said, I'll, I'll actually retire from international cricket and just go back to playing uh, first grade cricket for Queensland and play county cricket for Essex. I mean, that's how much he was disinterested in. He was so tired of the of the pressure and the loss. And now he is in this, he's played, you know, for almost five days of cricket, exhausting cricket, you know, against the toughest of opponents in these circumstances. And, you know, his brain must have, been, you know, really been struggling to think at every field place. And remember that at the beginning of the final day, India needed four, four runs per over to win. And in the last over of that day, they needed four runs. So, you know, the whole day had been relentless pressure. It really was never a point where they really felt that they were ever on top. And, I just think it's a. There's no other sport really that um, possibly Grand Slam tennis events. You know they play five sets rather than three, but that's the only other sport I can kind of think of that is in comparison where Test cricket, where you don't play the five days like this in un, only in that international form, and then you go back to lower forms of the game. So it's such a testing, searching event. Yeah, and uh, you know you mentioned that uh, bit about how uh, Border's having this uh, argument with the umpires and then he looks at David Boone and he says they can't pull me up for uh, they can't send me off for that can they and Boone's like <laughs> I forgot the exact line but he says I wouldn't know or something in a slang in slang right yeah that's right he says to him I don't know and he walks away and and Border's kind of looking for a friend at that point um but you know again that speaks to the inexperience of the Australians you know if, if on that tour if you had taken everyone in the team except for Border and added up how many test matches they'd played and doubled it they still hadn't played as many as Border I mean David Boone was the likely next candidate to be captain of Australia he'd played 11 test matches and Border had played 100 so, you know, Border was really on his own. And one of the, the things about that tour was the emergence of Bob Simpson, uh, which was a very, very important part because Australia had never had a full-time coach before. And Bob Simpson came along and took a lot of pressure off Border. He said, you know, I'll run the practice. I'll speak to the media. I'll help select the team. 
You know, they were the things that he was able to say to Border, I'll take that off your plate. I mean, Border had this nickname in this country, Captain Grumpy, which was uh, created by the media, uh, with good reason too, because he was really grumpy. You know, he used to do, he couldn't understand why he had to talk to the media. He didn't understand why he had to talk to them again the next day and why after net session they wanted to talk to him again and why he had to explain the team. You know, he just wasn't that person. And so for Bob Simpson on this tour, he started to emerge as someone who said, I can take a bit of this away from you. But, yeah, that, that final day was really... And, you know, it's the other thing about I found so interesting about this was, that, you know, we've been talking a lot about the Australians. India was such a good side. And when you look back on that team that India had, virtually every year for a decade, India had found another good player who would stay in that side. They were really stable. They'd been to Australia. They were unlucky. Probably the umpires in Melbourne cost them that series in Australia. They went to they went to England. One at two nil could have been three nil. Probably that last day of the the final test, they mucked up a bit, but it could have been three nil. Come come back home and beat Australia. They really were at at an apex. And and I it's it's a personal theory, but I have a feeling that they were playing in the way that their captain wanted them to. They were playing in the spirit of Kapil Dev. And his innings in the tied test is remarkable. I mean, people talk about Dean Jones quite rightly and, and Boone and Border both got hundreds, but Kapil Dev's hundred just changed that game dramatically. And there's this brilliant story that Son of Gavaskar tells, you know, about how India had collapsed on the, at the end of the third day and they'd come in the rooms and Kapil Dev had given them a roast and it said to them, you know, stop playing like it's a one-day game, you know, and take your responsibilities and, you know, this is a very important game and, you know, stop it. And then he'd come out about on the fourth day and the very first shot he played a Larry shot over over cover point, I think, for four. And and they all fell about laughing because that was Kapil Dev. He just, he played, seemed to play instinctively, but he also was not afraid of losing, you know, this amazing story about on the final day when when Kapilev is out and he's coming off the field and Ravi Shastri is coming out to bat next, and Shastri deliberately walks around the sight screen so he doesn't have to cross paths with him because he's worried the captain will say to him to shut the game down and he doesn't want to shut the game down. They want to go for the win, and I think that speaks about the Indian side of that time who were. You know, nothing was impossible for them. The 83 World Cup proved that. And in a way, they were at a different end of the spectrum to where Australia was. And Australia was so scared of losing. They were just, they were so desperate for any success. And India were just, they, they weren't afraid to win. They were afraid, you know, they weren't afraid of things. So the, the, it was, it's just interesting to see, isn't it, how teams at various stages of, of their development come across each other. Absolutely. And uh, talking about, uh, you know, um, the, you, you spoke about how uh, people in Australia couldn't really see that game for because, uh, you know, it was late in the night, it was during the football season, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, uh, everyone in India, I mean, who was around then and who was watching television saw that game. And yet that, you know, if some, someone like me wants to go back and see that couple day innings, it's I have uh, nothing to choose from. I mean, I think there's like one video, one video on YouTube that has, you know, say two minutes or something of that innings. But, you know, what a magnificent innings. And it's just been lost to time. And uh, we nobody really um, can see it again. Hopefully somebody will put it up. But as of now, there's nothing much to choose from. 
Well, I've never seen it, and um, I'd love to. I mean, he went from 50 to 100 in 16 scoring shots. You know, just remarkable for, um, uh, you know, I'd, yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the great sadnesses of all these things, isn't it? Yeah, it would have been great to see those great players in their time. Now we see everything um, in those days we don't. And maybe that adds a little bit to the mystique of it, the mystery of it. Yeah, but one thing I wanted to ask, though, when we were talking about the rancor and the ill temper that went on, um, generally, as far as I have read, both the teams had a pretty good rapport. But it just seems that in that test, things just (laughs) went, uh, whether it was because of the weather or whether it was because of the state of the game, uh, things just went out of hand. And the umpires then became key characters in the whole drama. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think... It's possible, you know, there was no match referee in those times and, um, you know, um, India had been critical of the Australian umpires the previous summer and Australia had been critical of the Indian umpires and, you know, that's that was often what went on, as you know, at that time until neutral umpires were introduced. Um, I, th- I mean, there were some ugly things that were said and done. I think, you know, the Australian wicketkeeper Zura, you know, was... Um, was part of that and, and look I just think there was some Australia didn't have a lot of shall we say humor on the final day in particular I don't think India did either and that's just that's the competition isn't it they're going on and the exhaustion and the heat and as I said in the Australian camp there was this sense of desperation too that remember they had declared twice in this match and you know it, it takes a special sort of moment to declare twice in a test match and still lose so, you know, they had a lot on the line. And the declaration, I think this is an interesting thing, was at the end of the fourth day, Border's instinct was to bat on. He wanted to bat on for at least another hour, perhaps in the fifth day, and really put the game out of India's reach. And it was Boone and it was Bob Simpson who kind of talked him out of it and said, you know, nobody's... Or I think that they said to Border, no one's ever made this many runs on the final day. I think it had happened twice before, but it was basically, you know, this is the, the possibility of in India actually running this down is so small that it's ridiculous. But if you don't give them the chance, they won't go for it. In other words, if you if you bat for the first hour again tomorrow, you kind of just put the, the game to sleep. But Border had to really be talked into that. And I suspect his emotion at the time was. I I can't, I just don't want to lose again. I'd rather have a a boring draw. And so, you know, again, that's the Australians at that point of their development. They were young, they were inexperienced, they were in a hostile place to play cricket and, you know, a lot of the humour went out of it. And yet um, I've also seen since incredible rapport between them. There was a test match dinner held in Adelaide and Ravi Shastri was there and Greg Matthews almost knocked the doors off their hinges getting to him to sit down to talk to him and and great feeling between the teams I know Ray Bright as well they speak so wonderfully about those players um you know Alan Border's description of uh um, sorry David Boone's description of Sonny Gavaskar belting consecutive fours off one knee against Craig McDermott he says I'll never forget that as long as I live two of the greatest shots I've ever seen in test cricket so in hindsight there's there's great feeling and at the time there was incredibly difficult emotions yeah, I think, uh, you know, the 
uh, it's a really interesting bit about how Kapil Dev mentions, uh, as you quote in your book, about how had Australia batted on a bit more on the fifth day and set a target that was just out of India's reach and then put fielders around the bat and, uh, you know, put the spinners on, then how India would have found it really difficult. It took me to the 2001 test in Kolkata where, uh, you know, India did exactly that. They batted on on day five, put the match completely pretty much out of Australia's reach and then uh, ended up winning that famous test. So a slight intriguing parallel on that front too. You always, you know, in test cricket, there's always that sense. I mean, Ian Chappell has always said that you have to give the opposition a chance to to win it, even if you, you know, you can't crush teams. And I, and I, and I think there's a lot in that, that you have to, um, you know, that's the beauty. Dangle the carrot, as he says. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, do you think we can entice them See if see if they'll go for it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's let's talk about the you know the writing itself. Uh, you could have got, gone about the writing in different ways, uh, but I guess um, you know the fact that there was no uh, extended coverage and the fact that uh, you know the, that you had to go on the stories uh, made it uh, automatic for you to choose the telescopic lens rather than look into, you know, every ball or every uh, over, which would have been very, very difficult for you to recreate? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the reality is that as, you know, a test match is like a ticking clock, isn't it? That, you know, it, it builds tension as it goes, but, you know, you don't want to be in a position where you're trying to describe every tick of the clock. It just becomes so difficult. Um, I just felt that um, the story was so big um, in the stories of the two countries. And, um, for example, I wrote some of the early chapters I wrote about previous tours that the Australians had been on to the subcontinent. And while it may seem when you read that um, a little bit, you know, this has nothing to do with border, it actually does because it gets back to this idea of what India meant to Australia at the time. And the Australian cricketers would say to you if you said um, you're going to India or you're going to the West Indies, they'd say, oh, you know, we've heard all the stories, which was code for, you know, we're worried about the food, we might get sick, we're not sure about the umpiring, we think the wickets could be difficult. Um, You know, all these things would come into play. And there's a great story in there of Kim Hughes um, who took an Australian team, they played a one-day series in India in the early 80s, I think it was a celebration of the Ranji Shield. Um, and he said that they had a team meeting in Brisbane beforehand and he stood up and he, had, and he said, look, you know, the crowd's going to be against us, the media's going to be against us, the wickets will be terrible, the umpiring's going to be problematic, um, you know, the, the food's going to make you sick and we're all, you know. So who wants to go? And everyone put their hand up. In other words, there's a sense of this is an adventure and a lot of that is nonsense. A lot of it's not true, but that was the image that they had. So I wanted to create that and put that in the reader's mind so that when the Australians come over, this is they're also carrying with them a lot of baggage and a lot of history that, you know, um, Steve Waugh tells this story about, you know, that he reckons he kind of just ate egg omelettes every day for 25 days in a row because he was so scared to eat anything else. I mean, this is the sort of fear that they brought with them. But... I really enjoyed talking to the guys who'd been over uh, before and what they'd come up against. And they were so full of joy and stories when they talked about it. You know, it wasn't, none of them spoke about it as if this was, 
a terrible thing. This, this was such an adventure. It was such an interesting place to go and play cricket. So I wanted to build that up and, and then I also needed to bring to life some of the people, I think, so that when you see where Dean Jones is at in his career, why that innings was so important to him and where Alan Border was at and why Greg Matthews was who he was and how he responded to that. So that was what I wanted to bring into it. And, and also, you know, smaller things like, you know, that Bob Simpson had come in and Bob had brought in a really strong regime of training. You know, he was relentless in the way he trained them. And he said, you know, you may not be the best cricketers in the world, but you'll be the fittest. And, you know, you'll never be the ones who are outworked. And then right before the Madras test, they're ready for another day of training. And he says, let's just go to the beach. Let's just go and do nothing, you know. So, so there's a lot of sort of stuff that goes on, which I think is quite interesting to build up the story. And then it gets, I think it gets sharper and sharper and focus. And in the end, the last few balls are worth recording because it's such a tense moment and, and it all comes together. And, you know, it's, it's a fantastic result. I mean, if it had gone one run or one wicket either way, we wouldn't be talking about it. But the fact that after five days it was a, a tied test is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, that that bit uh, that as it builds up towards the climax is uh, definitely the most riveting part of the book. And it's uh, it builds up almost to a perfect crescendo because uh, things are going at an easy pace and then suddenly you actually get to uh, almost relive the pattern of the last session or two, which is fantastic. And, and talking about uh, uh, India and Australia, I think it's really important that you do go go into the earlier tours because um, you know unlike say England or uh, Pakistan or um, you know some other countries with whom India shares a certain history, uh, Australia and you know maybe New Zealand are countries with whom the histories. I mean, a, a lot of what India knows about those countries are through cricket, and uh, I would assume it is the same vice versa. So it's really important to document uh, Australia's tours in the 59-60 as well as uh, the 69-70 tour for, to give an idea of what came before Border's team. And, and of course, the, that famous uh, photograph that Jim Higgs takes in 1979, uh, which, uh, you know, in a place in India where he sees uh, to lose uh, patience is to lose the battle is something that Steve Waugh and uh, several Australian cricketers have spoken of as uh, a mantra that they've taken on as uh, to India later on. So I think all that adds up really well. And I like the structure of the book. Um, talking about the players itself, though, um, one of the players, I mean, we've heard a lot about um, this test in India, and especially from the Australian lens, I've, we've heard so much about it from Dean Jones. But one of the characters who comes really comes across as a heroic figure here is Ray Bright. And um, I would like you to talk a bit about him. And, you know, he had his own uh, challenges with his health on that uh, during that test. He uh, was uh, tremendously unwell and uh, he had to then come on and bowl in that final session. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, Border didn't say, let's get a, a Queenslander in here. But still, it seems that the heroism that went through Ray Bright was uh, quite, if not on par, at least comparable to what Dean Jones went through. Oh, I agree. I think he um, – well, Greg Matthews says that Ray Bright should have been the man of the match. Um, and he – Ray Bright was a guy who got picked for Australia when he was still a teenager – He's from Victoria, and he 
has showed such early promise. And then he was kind of, he had this strange career where he used to go on tours for Australia, but not play that many test matches. And he was the most senior pro that they had in the team after Border. He actually predated Border. So he'd been in the side um, remarkably, never had a huge return of wickets. And when, it's interesting, when the leading up to the India test, when when they were in New Zealand and it really was going sour for them and um, Border threatened to quit, it was Ray Bright who held a team meeting and basically said to them, oh, look, you know, we've got to support Alan Moore. We've got to actually, you know, we've got to turn this thing around. But he, um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's not particularly fit. He wasn't an athletic player. He wasn't a massive turner of the ball either. He was kind of a, you know, he was a good pro, shall we say. And, yeah, the, the night before the match, you know, he, he decides to, of all things, he decides to go to bed early because the Australians are having a few drinks and he says, no, no, I'm not going to have a few drinks. You know, I might have a big day in the field tomorrow. I'm going to go to my room because he orders a pizza in his room and gets terrible food poisoning. And he arrives at the ground and the first day and he, and he just feels dreadful and he's praying that Australia wins the toss and bats. And when Border comes back and he says, we won the toss, we're going to bat, he just collapses on the floor and he basically, the floor of the change room, he basically spends the entire day there. And then he's lying there and uh, right in the last, you know, the kind of last half an hour of the day, you know, um, David Byrne gets out after making 100 and Border decides to send him in as the night watchman, you know. So he says, you know, he looks up, he's lying on the floor of the changer, he looks up, there's Border standing over the top of him saying, you know, get your pads on, you're going in. He says, you know, when the Australian captain tells you to go in, you go and do it. But here's the point. He goes in that night and he bats it out. I think he's two not out. And the next day he goes in and he bats with Dean Jones for about 45 minutes. And, you know, he, he's really struggling. I mean, he's just really, really unwell. But he hangs in there and he's such a professional player. The similar event by the time the final day comes around and he's again, he's in the rooms because he, he, you know, he at one point he, he can't breathe properly and, you know, Errol Alcott's very worried about his health. And he sends Dave Gilbert, the 12th man, and he says, you better go out and ask Alan if he wants me to come and bowl. And the message comes back, you know, in very, very blunt terms that yes. So he gets up off the floor, you know, puts his gear and goes out and he takes these wickets that really set up the tight because, you know, India is really kind of, they need about 17 runs. They've still got three wickets, four wickets in hand. And he comes on, he takes these vital wickets that, that do the job. And it's remarkable. And that's why Greg Matthews says, well, Greg Matthews' description of him was that he was walking around the field like a guy that had 15 beers. He said he was kind of, he wasn't even standing still in his fielding position. He was just kind of wandering around. He was that sort of <laughs> discombobulated in his head. It's a, you know, it's a fantastic physical effort to have done what he'd done. He's, I mean, certainly not taking anything away from the other players who did things as well. And certainly Jones paid a very heavy toll for his innings. But I do think that Ray Bright was remarkable. And that was the end, really the end of his career. He was not picked again for Australia after that tour. And he captained Victoria, at some, you know, for several years afterwards. But he did have a, a, you know, a remarkable moment in that match. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we've spoken about uh, Errol Alcott. We've spoken about Ray Bright. Now uh, we have to get to the two other characters who, you know, really came to life on the final day of that match. And you have uh, uh, 
really brought brought their roles out really well, which is the umpires, Dara Dotiwala and Vikram Raju. Um, uh, sadly, uh, Dotiwala is no longer with us, but uh, uh, can you talk a bit about uh, the talking to them and uh, trying to find out their role and the attitude that the Australians had towards them? Um, you know, it seems to have uh, been really challenging for them as well to get through that uh, final day. Yeah, really, a, a lot. And I'll tell you a couple of things. Um, those two umpires were guests at that function, that, that charity match that I explained to you. And they walked around like they were a couple. I mean, they were kind of with each other um, the whole time. And Greg Matthews ran up and wanted to have a photograph taken with them, you know, and he said, they're two of the bravest umpires that have ever stood in a test match because his argument was that, um, you know, neither of them umpired an international match after that tied test. And there's a, there's a sense that, I don't know if this is true, but there's a sense that perhaps um, they were not picked because of the result. I don't know if that's true or not. But I was always conscious with both of them that their English wasn't great. So I didn't want to misquote them in any way. So I, was, I spoke to them there and then I spoke to them again later. No, never did they deviate from their stories about what they thought had happened. And, you know, there was some rancor. And Ravi Shastri went in the rooms afterwards and really gave it to them um, about what he thought of the decision. He just couldn't believe it. Um, and it was a thrill for me because last year I was in Delhi and uh, Vivekan Raju was there and with his wife and I was able to give him a copy of the book. Cause, and it was, it was, he was a really, he was, I think he was really humbled by it and it was really lovely to meet him and to talk again. And even in then, he maintained everything that he'd said in the times I'd interviewed him before. He said that, he, you know, he didn't know what the score was. He wasn't trying to be part of history. He thought the wicket was out, you know, and, you know, it wasn't up to them to decide. Now, having said that, the other thing about this, which I think is remarkable about it is, the physical toll of standing for five days is a lot, as we know, concentration, the heat, everything. And he talks about how they used to come off for the breaks and they'd take their jackets off and their tie. And Bob Simpson, the Australian team manager, um, said to them, why don't you just leave your jackets off? But they didn't feel that they could. So they wore their jackets the whole time, you know. And to concentrate when you think about it, and then also they'd had this at least an hour of arguments back and forth with Alan Border about field placings and about how slow the game was going and what was going on. And, and you know, the Australians were vigorously appealing for everything. It's a real test of concentration. Now, I think that Dari Dwadwala really had imposed himself. I think he had that personality. He wasn't going to put up with anything. Earlier in the game, he'd made Dean Jones change his boots because he felt that he was running on the pitch and causing damage. So... And there's a great story too about when Bob Simpson gets so upset about this that he comes onto the field to remonstrate. And he just says, the umpires just say to him, you're the coach, you're not allowed to be on the field. I'm not listening to you. I mean, this is how determined they were and how organised they were. So I had great admiration for them in those circumstances. I think in a way they're a team within a team because they have to, those two guys are kind of, they've got the lonely job and, and, I found them, the three times I spoke to them, incredibly consistent with their answers and also, I think, really pleased to have been part of history. I think they really enjoyed it. But I thought I was full of admiration for them and it was a big effort and I know that the Australians felt that they 
even though they argued with them, they felt that they did, they did a good job. I, I found the role of uh, Dotiwala particularly interesting here. One, uh, throughout the match, he comes across as this strong-willed umpire who can stand up to Alan Border and the Australians. And that is something that typically Indians will admire, right? And then he was not at the end uh, for the final over. So he didn't have the burden of making the final decision. And he knows the repercussions of making that final decision. For instance, Ravi Shastri strongly believes uh, it, was a, it was a mistake. He could have easily turned around and said, if I had been there, I would have given it not out. The fact that he stood by his colleague pretty much throughout, like you mentioned, even in the charity game, uh, he, he stands by the colleague, speaks volumes about, about his character and about, about how much he stood up for Vikram Raju. I completely agree. And, um, you know, Ravi Shastri has, when I spoke to him about it, I said, do you think that Manish Singh hit it? And he said he didn't hit it, he smashed it. He said it was a terrible inside edge. I mean, he was completely convinced the decision was wrong. But those two umpires, they weren't, you know, they were their own. But but there was there was a humility to them as well. That's what I'm saying when I met them um, on, on several occasions. They were happy to talk about it. They, they went through it and they wouldn't take any sort of suggestion that, you know, did you know this? No, nope, no, nope, that's what we did. And you're right, they supported each other right through the whole thing. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm full of admiration for them. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, by now it's uh, time that we really empathise with their position, given what we have seen with the technology and DRS and uh, the m- fine margins of errors that even... Uh, the the multiple cameras around the ground can't pick up. You know, after umpiring for five days on the final ball, I mean, uh, on the final over, you have to make a decision like that. I mean, this is if this is the time we really need to, you know, doff our hats to them and say the fact that they even kept their heads is a big achievement. I agree. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. And keeping your heads a good a good description of it because also as much as you know you have this. Alan Border, you know, getting upset about being pressured for time. You've also got the responsibility of these two guys to run the game, knowing that they're going to lose the light. And you imagine the consequences of that if um, they hadn't got the play done. Well, you, 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 you know, I think, I think they, they did a remarkable job. Uh, which then brings me to that final wicket. And, uh, of course, there is this uh, uh, wonderful story that you have of the photographer who captured that moment, uh, Mala Mukherjee. Uh, she uh, just, um, you know, it, it was a, a coincidence that uh, she was uh, in, there at the right place at the right time. She snapped the photograph. And of course, that is the photograph that has been, um, you know, associated with that game for all these years. Uh, is, was that something that you knew right from the beginning that uh, when you write this book, that's going to be on the cover or... Um, and if you can just talk us about uh, that photograph, because a lot has been written about it and about Alan Border's reaction. And people have said that the fact that he's not even appealing shows that he knew there was an edge. Uh, you know, has that photograph been over- scrutinized too much? Uh, yeah, well, possibly. Um, Mike Coward told me the story of Marla and how she had taken the photograph. And I was able to interview her and she was tremendous and she um you know gave us permission to use the photograph for the book 
there's another there is another photograph taken more or less at ground level probably from um point which looks more or less over Alan Border's shoulder and it's a really interesting photo and you can see Bruce Reed running in toward the wicket with his arms raised above his head and Border is kind of scrambling around or he's looking back at the umpire and Nina Singh is looking a bit confused. It's a really good photo. It was used on the it was used in the Australian Cricket Board's annual report in 1986. We were never able to find the original image um, because it's got writing and headlines all over it. We we're never able to find it. Because mine, but I'm sure it was taken by an Indian photographer because the reason Marla got the great shot that nobody else got was that she all the rest of them thinking that India would win, went down to the boundary sideline to get the photographs of the post-match presentation. And she decided that she would take one photo of every ball of the last two overs. And that's how she got it. Um, so it is, a, it is fascinating. And with the border question, you're exactly right. And Alan, by his own admission, he says, my first instinct was to get the ball in case India ran. That, that was his description of what went on, was that the, the, the ball had popped out, he had to run and get the ball. And then he said, everyone was running around and screaming and yelling. And he said, I kind of looked back over my shoulder. I think by that point, the finger has down. So the decision had already been given, which is why he has that confused look on his face. And he said in the interview, I, I didn't know, have we won? Have we lost? It's a, I don't know what's going on, but, you know, people are grabbing stumps and charging off the ground and all sort of all sorts of mayhem. So I think that's a, that's a reasonably um, logical explanation of what he looks like. And Marla's photo is fantastic because it's a great moment. And, you know, you talk about confidence. You, know, see, you see where Greg Matthews is going. He looks like he's got his arms out like the wings of a spitfire. You know, he's just, he's just, he's just in flight. He knows it's happened. Um, and, and Border looks so confused. And, but others look quite confident. So, you know, you've got to read into what, what you want. But it's similar, I think, as there's that amazing photo taken of the Tide Test in Brisbane as well when the stumps are knocked down, when... When the West Indies players look, West Indian players look like they're dancing, so it's it's a fantastic image. So I was thrilled to get Marla involved, and um, and you know, as you know, she's not a sports photographer; she's an artist, and she has her own gallery, and you know, she's an esteemed photographer. Just happened to be she was at the cricket with her husband at the time. She took the she took the photo. <laughs> yeah, that's that's such a lovely, lovely moment for me. I mean, here's the person who's just at this test. She's not a a professional, you know, she's not assigned to cover this test as a photographer, but she's come here and she's taken this photo. And it's so amazing that all these years later, you know, that that photo is cap still captures so much. That little, that detail and that that uh, interview with her and talking to her, that really was very touching. Um, so I really wish that, uh, you know, she, <laughs> a lot more people recognize uh, the value of that photo and what she has, uh, the fact that she was there at the right place at the right time, what, how much it has added to the romance of that test. You know, a couple of things about that test. You do mention in the book that when people say tight test, the first uh, image that comes to mind is the Brisbane test, uh, uh, at, at least for many in Australia. Uh, talking about uh, you know the comparisons that uh, the series in 1961 uh, of course uh, was uh, one of the greatest series of all time and the same can't be said for this series which uh, you know the next two this was a tie and then you had draws after that so and 
in terms of uh, just the drama and quality, none of the other matches could match this. Um, so do you think that, uh, you know, that, the as- that aspect as well as the aspect of lost uh, footage, as well as uh, generally the Australian team moving on from there and then going on to become a juggernaut, do you think all that has played a part in, um, you know, this test gradually receding from memory? I mean, of course, books like these are great to revive that. But uh, generally, do you think that um, this test is uh, slowly being forgotten? Yep. And I think it... um, I don't think it gets the credit it deserves. I really don't. I think that... um, I mean, Bob Simpson's the only only person who was at both. You know, he was in, in that tied test in Brisbane as a player and he was coach of Australia. He thinks Madras was a better game, a more significant game. You're right about the series against West Indies Australia. It was an incredible series um, and it was the first of many remarkable results and um, really endeared cricket back to Australia. You know, it was really, it was a romantic summer for Australia. This was not the case with this, but I was, you know, the passion that the guys had who played in that game has not waned. And, um, you know, a lot of those guys didn't make it through, but if you look at, sorry, didn't make it through to that sort of golden age, but if you look at Craig McDermott, Dean Jones, David Boone, Jeff Marsh, Steve Waugh, Alan Border, that's a pretty good nucleus. And the other guys slowly fell away from the team and they were replaced and other players came in. But that side that, that, went on to win the World Cup in 87, you know, they really, I think they really felt that they'd been through the hard years and that they'd really had to rebuild Australian cricket and what it meant to play for Australia. And and that's, I think, that's the legacy for this country. It was not so easy, I think, to find a legacy in that test match in India because I think probably it would be fair to say that India felt that it lost that match in the sense that it that, that that was a home series and that, as you say, it had a tied test and then two draws, it was probably move on to the next thing. But then, as I mentioned, they were already a great side and had so many great players in that team. And 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 remember that Vinsaka didn't even play in that match. You know, he was out injured and he'd been the, the player of the series against England. So, um, you know, in that respect, I suspect for India it was a disappointment. But for Australia, it, it needs to be up there with the greatest test matches that they've been involved in and I think it's a shame that there's no footage of it and it's a shame that in a way it's starting to fade. But um, it's my opinion that it's one of the great test matches ever played and therefore it's also one of the great test matches for this country. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, you're right about the Indian perspective. I mean, India was the home team then and they were expected to win. And the fact that they got so close to chasing that total and then uh, couldn't make it, and then they couldn't uh, end up winning the series. I think all that made it a little more disappointing from their end. And uh, in terms of the narrative, you know, unlike for Australia, which uh, it ended up being the starting point of a really glorious journey, for India, it wasn't anything of that sort. I mean, it was more like uh, one great game, and then, you know, you had this various ups and downs continue. But uh, I can tell you, for uh, you know, from just for, from someone who was really young watching that game, uh, you know, these players are uh, were all like really well-known in India, very popular. David Boone was uh, one of the most uh, popular uh, cricketers among, uh, you know, Indians of my generation who watched then. Um, uh, he was also really good in that 1991-92 uh, series when India went there. So 
we used to really like him. And as um, someone from Chennai, Mahesh can confirm that uh, all these players, right? I mean, they were they are really, really adored in Chennai. Um, Steve Waugh, Dean Jones, Alan Border, Mahesh. Yeah, I mean, I've been uh, so I started watching cricket at the ground in 2001, and and since then I've watched pretty much every game there. For the next 10 years, people are still talking about Dean Jones innings. People who were fortunate enough to be there in '86, they still talk about it. So there's not a single visit to Chipok where I don't hear about stories of the tight test from people that I know, from people that I do not know. They could be sitting three rows away. And all of a sudden, you're socializing over, over a cricket conversation and the conversation invariably goes back to the right test. Yeah, I think uh, uh, Chepok has been fortunate to see some uh, epic uh, India-Australia games, uh, tight test, uh, the World Cup uh, game in 87. There was that uh, 1998 uh, test uh, with uh, Tendulkar and Shane Warren having that famous battle, 2001 test. I mean, it's just a, a ground that is meant to host India-Australia games. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. And the other point uh, which puzzled me initially when I was uh, when I was, you know, reading about tight test, and I wasn't watching it at that time because I was too young. Uh, when I discovered about tight test, the first thing that, that struck me is this happened in September. Come on, no way it would have been that hard for Dean Jones to, to struggle so much. And... and you know, on that, extending on that, what struck me about this tight test versus, let's say, the Brisbane one is that it's very, just the odds have to fall in place, right? It's very likely sometime in the next 100 years, we'll witness a total cricket classic like the Brisbane tight test. But for something like this to fall in place, it's almost a unique legacy of its time because even Alan Border talks about it after uh, many years later, where he says, I did, we did not understand how dehydration worked. Or the, or the pain or the, or the perils of dehydration. Otherwise, I may not have pushed my players so much. So subsequently, when Australia came back in 98, uh, they played uh, Chennai, the Chennai Test in March, which must have been hotter than this. And in 2001, uh, again, they played in March. So each team subsequently were much better prepared to handle the heat. So in many ways, this cannot happen again because one, the, our knowledge of science is getting better. Our knowledge of uh, recovery is getting better. And teams are getting more professional. So it's almost impossible for us to get another test like this where external factors play such a massive influence. You, yeah, you make a very good point. And Steve Waugh has said, you know, now a game like this would have been called off. And I don't quite know what that means because I've never seen a test match called off because it's too hot. But I think what he's getting at is exactly your point, which is the the lack of science and understanding. I mean, you know, Errol Olcott had, you know, from his own notes, he said he had, you know, ordered water for the rooms and in a miscommunication they had delivered bottles of Pepsi. And, you know, he said, you know, so in the end he kind of just did what he could to set up almost like a triage station, you know, Bath put the ice in there, you know, and Jones would come off and the players would strip all his gear off and they'd put him in the shower and put him in the bath and run the shower over his head and then, you know, put his pads back on, put his clothes back on and send him out to bat again. You know, it's, it sounds barbaric, doesn't it, compared to the circumstances now. The question that I've always had is that, you know, there's this famous moment which has been told so many times that, you know, when Jones says to Border when they're batting, he says, I'm finished, you know, I, I can't go on. And Border challenges him in a very rough way and says, oh, you know, if you, if you can't go on, then I'll bring out a real 
Australia, I'll bring in a Queenslander, you know, which was to appeal to his parochialism. And if you think about it, the match comes down to one run either way. What if Jones had said to Border, yeah, okay, I will go off because I'm real I'm really losing concentration here. And they had brought out Greg Ritchie. And Greg Ritchie had builded, let's say, a quick 40. And Jones had recovered and come back in. The match may not have ended. So your point is right. There are so many circumstances and things that happen that could have got us all that way, not to mention the Capital Dev innings. Um, and also Gaviscar in the final day comes in and you know, he hits 90. He's like, you know, in the more or less in the first session, playing audacious shots at the getting toward the end of his career. And, you know, he was not a fan of one day cricket. You know, he really liked his career, but he bought into that idea that this was the way India was playing and this was the verve of the moment. And, you know, there was a lot of everybody seemed to be involved doing something. And all those circumstances, all those great players came together for this remarkable result. And, yeah, it could be a long time before we see another one. Absolutely. Um, and, and we were talking just before uh, the recording, we were talking about how uh, Steve Waugh uh, basically uh, had that um, slight misfield, which uh, allowed, uh, you know, the, uh, India to get back for two runs, Ravi Shastri and uh, to get back for two runs. And uh, who knows, had uh, Waugh been sharper on the, uh, with that throw, uh, who knows how that could have turned out. So that's how fine the margins were. <laughs> well, he's still embarrassed by that. I mean, he's still, you know, Steve Waugh still rolls his eyes when he's asked about it. You know, he just, for that exact reason, I think. You know, he says, you know, he's so standing in the outfield and that last ball thing, please don't hit it to me. And that's a, that's an awful mindset, isn't it, for the uh, professional athlete to say, you know, I hope, I hope I'm not involved in this. You know, nobody wanted to make that mistake. You know, so so you're right. I mean, if, everything comes down to a fine a fine moment here. Well, you know, you know, Yadav comes in late. He has one scoring shot, and it's a six. You know, I think it's absolutely remarkable that shot, which which does exist um, on YouTube. You can actually see that. But I mean, for a guy at the tail of innings like that to come out, bang, back straight over the bowler's head for six, and that's the only scoring shot that he had. I think he faced eight deliveries. It's fantastic stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, he's another player who's, uh, you know, who had an instrumental role to play in that test. And uh, we should acknowledge his, uh, both his bowling as well as that uh, shot that set it up in the end. So, uh, so another, another comparison that, uh, because I watched both these documentaries back to back yesterday, uh, another striking sort of comparison that, uh, that struck me was the fact that uh, Chennai had this extraordinary heat and it was very challenging conditions. If at all, you know, you would expect players to kind of uh, not be rational in their approach. You would have expected that to happen in Chennai and not in Brisbane. But if you if you watch the documentary on that Brisbane tight test, you will see Richie Bennett, Bennett running for like you know crazy panicky singles. They could have they could have had like twenty runouts out of which they eventually ended up having three or four runouts. So. The sense of control and calm in a very so extremely tense situation in Chennai was so much better uh, to, to watch. And, and even Ravishastri, for instance, the way he rationalizes taking that single. And in fact, it's beautifully captured in, in uh, the Madras Magic documentary where Shastri says, that's the last thing Alan Border would have wanted me to do. And then they go to Alan Border. And the next thing he says, I don't know why he did it. And I was happy that he did, that he did it. So the, the, the cold and calculated and pretty much rational approach in such tense situation 
was was quite an eye opener for me. I, I would have expected it to be reversed between Brisbane and Chennai, especially given the, the excruciating heat and and all the illness that players suffered. But most of them, except for the Steve or Misfield, most of them seems to have done their part really well, and that seems to have elevated the last hour contest even more. You make a really good point about Ravi Shastri, and I found that absolutely fascinating. That his his clarity of thought in that moment was, I'll take the single because then we can't lose. And then we've got, I think it was three balls left to, to, to make it happen. But the second part was that they had already discussed that. They had discussed that, the two batsmen together, to say this is what's going to happen. And if I get a single one and go for it and then we'll put the game there. And all the Australians were incredulous. I mean, it, at, at the final moment when there's just minutes left in the game, the thing turns on its head again and Australia is lost. Why, why, why did he do that? And you, and you think about it, it's completely logical, but I admire that clarity and that clearness with everything that's going on. And given that Shastri has hit some enormous blows, some beautiful shots in his innings, I mean, he's really taken them apart and he's exhorting the crowd. You know, he's standing there waving his bat over his head, getting the crowd stirred up. So his adrenaline must have been flowing. And, you know, he was really taking it to the Australians. I mean, he was he was whipping this game up, this final half an hour up, that, you know, we're going to overrun. You know, he must have read the body language of the Australians and all sorts of things going on out there that they're, you know, that they're deteriorating, that they're lacking confidence. You know, he was a such a charismatic figure when he played. I thought I, I couldn't agree with you more. I thought he was fantastic to talk to. And very similar to the umpires, you know, his story has never changed over the years, you know, and he, he remains convinced of those circumstances. I mean, so cold was Shastri in his calculation that he even talks about the fact that the next two tests are in uh, Delhi and uh, Bombay, which are flat wickets, which could be draws. So if we lose this test, then we could lose the series. I mean, this is how far he's been thinking in that tension and uh, craziness. <laughs> Yeah, it was fantastic. It was almost as if saying we've got to take this now because it, you know, there's two more test matches, but I can't guarantee that's going to happen. No, I thought he was tremendous. Very, very interesting guy to interview. I really enjoyed listening to him and hearing his thoughts. And, you know, I think he's a self-made cricketer. You know, that's that's how I read it. Um, I, You know, my, my understanding of him was that he was a player, perhaps not, you know, similar to Ray Bright, who didn't have necessarily the gifts that others had, but worked very hard. And I suspect as a result of that, thought logically about cricket and thought through every situation and made the best of it. And as he did then, I mean, I, who knows if you didn't have someone calm like that, what might have happened? Yeah, and did you did you get a chance to speak to Maninder Singh as well? Because uh, it it seems it was very touching to see how uh, Maninder has uh, you know reconciled completely to that decision. I mean, he of course says that uh, he hit it, but uh, you know he has empathized with the umpires and he understands. And of course, we know that Maninder has gone through his own upheavals uh, in his career and things. So, did you get a chance to speak to him? He was a player that I was only able to see the interview that he had done. Um, okay. So I was able to listen to all that. And I thought he was, um, again, very interesting. You know, he was a guy who, you know, there was a lot of pressure on him as a young player in particular, wasn't there, that he was, you know, he was going to be the next um, the next bowler. You know, he was going to, you know, be I just think he was Bishon under Beatty. a lot of pressure. He was going yeah. to be Vishen Beatty and, he, and, you know, he had to kind of perform and, and, and all of those things. And, and in the end, you know, possibly 
unfairly gets characterised as the guy who cost the test match. Uh, when you know, perhaps he did, perhaps he didn't. But yeah, I found him. The interview I saw with him, which we, which I was able to use for notes and for quotes, I thought he was tremendous and a very interesting guy to talk to. And and you're right, had a lot of sympathy for others. You know, he's the one who famously said that you know sometimes when you're bowling to a player like Dean Jones, he said it's a it's an honour to be out there because someone's playing so well. Having said that, they also got into each other big time, and that um, I know that he gave Jones a spray. Um, when Jones got out in the second innings um, as he was going off and and there was some ill temper between them at the time. So, you know, I'm not saying he was a passive character in the whole thing, but his reflection of the game, yes, is very even-handed and forgiving of others. Yeah, again, uh, one of the interesting uh, bits in the book, one of the several interesting bits in, bits in the book is about how, uh, you know, the difference between how uh, someone like Dean Jones played the Indian spinners and how, the Indian batsmen played the Australian spinners. And, um, you know, that's a very interesting uh, contrast that I found and uh, which I would, you know, uh, urge you to read and also um, take delight in. So this this was uh, wonderful. Mahesh, uh, do you have anything else to add? I've pretty much covered what I have to. I would like to profusely thank Michael for this book uh, because it's a very important, historically significant event for cricket. And, uh, and particularly for Indian cricket, I, I know the feelings are very similar in Australia where this is seen as the forgotten tight test. But in India, it's far worse. And we don't even have a Brisbane tight test to compare it with. So it's a much more significant uh, piece of work for, for Indian cricket. So and I'm extremely grateful to you for that. And, and I also would like to uh, tell listeners that uh, while he sets the context for the Australian team coming into that test, he also paints a beautiful portrait of the Indian team at that time, and particularly a very endearing portrait of, of the main protagonist. Uh, there's a line that he writes about Sunny being a player who plays in harmony with the state of the match. Uh, we've seen Sunny being described as many things in India, as a slow batter, as someone who can bat fast if required. Uh, Ram Guha writes about the two Gavaskars in, in his book. But this line captures uh, the essence of Sunny's batting. He bats in harmony with the, with the state of the match. So I liked all the portraits that he wrote of the Indian plays as well. So uh, beyond the Titus as well, I think it's a very, very important book. And, uh, and I'm very, very uh, grateful to Michael for writing this. Thank you. Yes, uh, profuse thanks for me as well. And Michael, just before you go, we do ask uh, um, our guests, uh, especially guests who are uh, journalists and writers and uh, people who are into reading to recommend one book to our listeners, this could be a book about, I mean, this is a, uh, is a book that we ask about cricket, but it could be about uh, cricket in anywhere, Australia or any other place. Something that you would like our listeners to pick up? I think it's two. Can I mention two? Sure, sure, sure. So I love Duncan Hamilton's biography of uh, Harold Larwood. I thought that was tremendous. And I thought John Lazenby's book, Edging Toward Darkness, about the last timeless test, South Africa, England, before the war, was also great. I used, I used it as, as a bit of a guide, to, but it was different in, the, in that John was dealing with a match where nobody was left alive from it. So his was more of a, a work of history, whereas I was fortunate to have people who could still remember playing in it. But I thought both those books, I mean, I just... John has a great ability to evoke uh, another era of cricket. And I thought Duncan's work on uh, Harold Larwood was just, just fantastic. 
Wonderful. So I will link those two books in the notes and I would uh, urge our listeners to pick it up. Uh, both uh, terrific books. I've, uh, I, I'm going to revisit John's book now that you talk about it. And uh, uh, Harold Awood, of course, yeah, it's one of the great uh, books in cricket literature. So yes, please pick it up. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Michael. This was uh, fantastic. And uh, thanks again for writing the book and thanks for joining us. It was absolute pleasure, and I apologise for the dog in the background. Oh, not a problem at all. What was the, what is the dog's name? We should know. <laughs> the name is Tilly, as in Matilda. So thank you, Matilda. Oh, Matilda. Okay, yeah. so quintessentially Aussie. So, That's it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So yeah, not a problem. I guess uh, Matilda needs to get in a say as well. So thank you. <laughs> thank you very much, both of you. India have won the series. They're going to get back for two. India at home. Lords goes wide.